Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, in addition to the meeting of the United Nations General Assembly Week, there is also something called the Sustainable Investment Forum. It is scheduled for tomorrow at the Crown Plaza Hotel here in New York City. And one of the participants is our guest, Fred Samama. He is a Deputy Global Head of Institutional and Sovereign Clients at Amundi. And for those that may not be familiar with Amundi, I believe it's the largest publicly traded asset manager in Europe. And it is a result of the combination of the asset manager business of Credit Agricole and uh, go ahead and Sokgen and Sokgen yeah well okay you can tell us more Fred Samama thanks for being here the, the reason My I pleasure. wanted people to understand about Amundi just a little bit is because they re- they purchased Pioneer Investments I believe from Unicredit correct and so that has really kind of changed the profile of Amundi to something that most Americans will will soon know about. So I'm wondering if you could explain your uh, company's dedication to sustainable uh, finance initiatives and what are you going to be talking about tomorrow? Yes, good morning, and I'm very glad to be with you this morning. Uh, um, Sustainable investment is part of our DNA. We strongly believe that when you invest over the long run, you must integrate these ESG criteria in your investment process. Not only to have a positive... Sorry, what kind of criteria? Uh, uh, ESG. Tell uh, people what that is. Uh, environmental, social, and governance uh, uh, criteria. Not only to have a positive impact on society, but to manage long-term oriented risks as well. Because we think that these criteria are helping generate returns over the long run. So this is this is a crucial point because when people talk about sustainable investing out of the goodness of your heart, uh, people in the investing uh, universe, they, they want to feel good about themselves, but their eyes glaze over because it's not their job. Their job is to manage risks and their job is to get returns. And so what you're saying is that you are showing people how they can hedge against some of the economic risks of climate change by investing in certain kinds of companies. Can you give us an example of companies that investment managers would invest in with an eye toward climate change? And can you give us a sense of what returns have been like to date? You're absolutely right. Here we are talking about uh, generating um, uh, returns over the long run. Uh, concretely, we have invented for two large European investors, AP4 and FRR, low carbon indexes. These indexes are a way to decarbonize passive investments instruments. It's a way to reduce climate change-related risks without changing market returns over the short run. So how? How? Because we do a screening sector per sector, and we will look at the carbon footprint or how a company is exposed to climate change-related risks. Concrete example that speaks to everybody. If you take the example of the auto car makers, on the one hand, you have a company named Volkswagen developing softwares in order to, to, to lie on climate change. On the other hand, you have corporates like Toyota or Tesla uh, developing um, cars that are anticipating a shift towards EVs. So you can see that for all sectors, you actually have managements either denying what's happening or anticipating. And we strongly believe 
that it's better to be uh, to be invested into the latter ones than in the former ones. And the good news is that investors, having started the process of using these low carbon indexes, have outperformed. A P4, a Ferrer are beating the standard indexes. And now this technology, having been developed in Europe, uh, is now spreading around the planet. Calsters, New York Common Retirement Fund, New Zealand Superannuation Fund, they are all using this technology uh, in order to reduce their climate change-rated risks without impacting their returns over the short run. Is that a strategic decision on the part of these pension funds that they've decided? I mean, as you mentioned, whether it's the New York Common Retirement Fund, Unilever's Corporate Pension Fund, is that a strategic position that they stake as well, that they must pay attention to these issues? Absolutely. Uh, to take a concrete example. So it doesn't really even matter whether the money manager believes that this is something good to be done out of the goodness of everybody's heart. The mandate from the manage, from the from the people who actually aren't responsible for the money, the pension fund managers, they are telling uh, their potential vendor, look, this is how I want you to invent, invest the money. Correct. Concrete example, New, Ze- New Zealand Superannuation Fund, and we have been speaking to them for, for years on this topic. They have announced a couple of weeks ago that they were switching $10 billion of their equity funds towards low-carbon indexes. So to make a long story short, it's not to look good in an annual report. It's not to be on any uh, you know, pictures at UN uh, assemblies. It's really because they believe that here they are facing a market failure. Markets being short-term oriented, they don't price correctly the risks associated with climate change. And so it becomes their fiduciary responsibility to analyze those risks and to try to reduce their weightings. It's exactly the message of Mark Carney. The governor of the Bank of England says, if you don't integrate climate change-related risks while being a, 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 a corporate pension fund manager, you're breaching your fiduciary responsibility. Well, Very strong words. Well, Fred, you know, I'd love to get your sense, though, because there's been there's been some pushback about ESG funds and even carbon neutral funds basically saying, how do you really determine that a lot of companies can kind of manipulate how they look, but it doesn't really matter that it's not really uh, reducing their carbon footprint all that much. Uh, you know, on ESG, um, it's slightly different from carbon. ESG is um, differs from one country to the other one. To take a concrete example, if you talk about ESG in Japan, it will be all about governance. If you talk about ESG in China, it will be all about climate change. What I'm trying to say here, it has this word uh, conveys uh, different meanings depending on the countries you're in. On climate change, is different. The carbon footprint of, of a Chinese, Japanese, European, or U.S. corporate is, is the same one how polluting you are or are you exposed to stranded assets, meaning do you have assets that could be kept under the ground? So it has no, um, I I would say, moral values behind. It's all about materiality and risks over the long run. And then for that, we have pretty clear pictures with providers having analyzed that for, for more than one decade. You know, just just briefly, I just wanted to mention because we were talking about the New Zealand superannuation fund, and at the time, I believe it was Adrian Orr uh, at the fund who who said that they are still going to invest in fossil fuel uh, companies, but that they don't feel that they're being adequately rewarded for the risk. So to your point, and they said they reduced uh, what the twenty five billion dollar fund exposure to emissions uh, and reserves by around twenty percent each. 
Yeah, that the yeah. point is that the point is not to get rid of fossil fuel companies. The point is not to disinvest. The question is within each industry, which corporates are well positioned facing this this shift of society. Yeah. Fred Samama, thank you so much for joining us. I we could talk to you all afternoon. This is actually fascinating, and you're raising $2 billion uh, in funds to create the largest green bond fund for emerging markets. Fred Samama, Deputy Global Head of Institutional and Sovereign Clients for Amundi. Let's turn our attention now to what to do with your money and some of the, uh, well, strategies that you might employ. Brad McMillan is the Chief Investment Officer for Commonwealth Financial Network, and he joins us here in our 1130 studio. Brad, always a pleasure. Thanks for being here. I'm wondering if if maybe you can describe uh, the importance of, let's say, a non-stock or uh, not fixed income number. And this has to do with household income, because I was reading a note that you put out a couple of weeks ago, and it had to do with paying attention to median household income in the United States and what that would mean for investors. Tell us about it. Well, the the point of the uh, piece was to talk about the we talk about the stock market records, but there are underlying records that are much more important when we see where the stock market's likely to go. And one of the most important ones recently has been household income, median household income. The household income, half the people make more, half make less, has actually hit a new record for the first time since 1999. Now think about that for a minute. There's, there's some good news in there and there's some bad news. The bad news is it took almost a full generation to hit a new high. The good news is that we have hit a new high and we've done it without a ton of economic growth. So that being the case, if we look forward, if we see growth accelerating, and we may well in the rest of the year, then that actually would mean that wage growth could take up and actually income could get even better. People could spend more and we could move into a positive circle. That would be great for the market. So, Brad, it sounds like you're bullish right now. Over the short term, I am. I think the market's actually going to do pretty well through the rest of the year. I think the signs for 2018, at least at the start of the year, are very good. You, I guess, go ahead. I was just going to say, in that case, do you perceive that companies will spend some of the money that they have either raised through bond issues or because they've just amassed large cash piles, will they start spending that on something other than share buybacks and dividends? Will they spend it on wage increases? Will they spend it on technology to make their businesses more productive? I think they're going to have to start spending it on wage increases. We're already seeing signs they're starting to invest more. And that actually is the key to future income growth, which is increasing worker productivity. That's been one of the problems. Companies are running out of bodies to throw at the problem now. They're going to have to start buying equipment. And that's going to be another positive for the economy. Brad, at what point are we going to start seeing inflation? We're going to start seeing prices rise. We're going to start seeing, uh, as you said, wages increase. That will lead to higher benchmark borrowing costs. And Alan Kruger of Princeton uh, was on Bloomberg Television earlier. And in in break, he was talking about how uh, he could see 10-year Treasury yields rising to 4% pretty quickly if we start to see that. Do you agree? And how disruptive would that be? I do agree with that because right now we've had very little inflation. And the assumption is what's never going to show up. I think when it shows up, it'll show up faster than people think. And that could well be in the next 18 months. 
Now that that's the case. Infl- and what kind of inflation? What are we talking about? Energy, food, home prices? What kind? Across the board. One of the reasons we've had low inflation is because wage growth has been so constrained. Wage growth feeds into everything else. We've had a number of things getting cheaper and cheaper. We've had cars. Globalization is continuing to work its way. Yeah, but through. why is that connected? In other words, you, you, maybe I'm getting you wrong. Wages have not, as you said, 1999, we waited a long time for wages to come back. Wages rise, but that doesn't necessarily mean that prices are going to go up. I thought inflate, one of the reasons inflation has been held in check is because every time you turn around, someone else invent, invented the same thing for less money, deliver it to you faster, like an Amazon, for example. Well, you can look at it a couple of different ways. You can look at it as a company and say, if I have to pay more wages, now either I'm going to make less money or I have to raise prices. That's where price increases come from, from a cost in the inputs, or because there's just not enough capacity. Companies say, you know what, I can't make enough to sell all I need, so I'm just going to raise prices and match my production with the demand at the higher price. That being the case, you can see those dynamics start to set up in place, and that's what would generate the inflation. Brad, if if you could see 10-year Treasury yields, which are now about 20 basis points over 2%, rising to 4% over the next 18 months, conceivably, if we start to see uh, the sort of increase in wages and inflation. What would that do to stock markets? Well, it would do something bad to the economy, and it could do something worse to markets. I mean, the one thing that really causes a stock market pullback, a big one, is a recession, and rising rates is one of the key indicators of a recession. If you look at all of the major indicators, we're fine right now, we're fine for the next 12 months or so, but sometime in the next couple of years, we are going to have a recession. And that could be one of the causal factors. So in other words, if things accelerate meaningfully more, that will put us much closer to a recession. It could, yes. Are you calling for one in what, two years? I think I think in the next 18 to 24 months, it's quite possible. I, I do a monthly, uh, I track significant factors on my blog every month. Right now, we're still in the green light zone. But you can actually see the decay in, for example, hiring trends. We're on a downward path. Things are slowing down. And somewhere in the next year or two, that can hit the trouble. But is that, is that hiring slowing down because it just quickly, because of technology or no, just because of the economy? Just because we're running okay. out of people. All right. That's the simple part. We don't have enough workers. Brad McMillan, thank you so much for joining us. Brad McMillan, Chief Investment Officer for Commonwealth Financial Network, overseeing assets of $114 billion and based in Waltham, Massachusetts. Uh, this is this is a very important issue, and you raise an incredibly interesting point. Even though investors have pretty much dismissed the idea of higher rates, some are still saying they are near. We want to focus now on the aftermath, the economic consequences of natural disasters such as uh, Hurricane Irma, Hurricane Harvey. Joining us, Brian Egger, our senior gaming and lodging analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Brian, thanks for uh, joining us here nice in our here. studio. Um, I understand that if Florida, ha- the uh, hospitality and tourism industry in Florida is worth about 90 billion dollars uh and the storm took a direct hit uh on that and i'm wondering if you could tell us the effects but also uh how outsized are the uh the ramifications is it unusual because we know hurricane season exists and we know that you know many businesses try to prepare for it so florida is about the 12th largest uh hotel market in the u.s in terms of room supply it's also a very big 
uh, cruise deployment market, as you might expect, about about uh, anywhere from a third to a half of these cruise lines capacity is deployed in the Caribbean. So the potential for disruption exists. Fortunately, I would say with respect to Irma, uh, this storm could have been far worse in terms of its lingering impact. You know, I have to wonder just in general, though, with the cleanup, with this unpredictability, with this feeling that one hurricane after another just keeps slamming in the same area, is there going to be a long-term dampening effect on demand for some of these cruise lines, as well as, frankly, uh, some of the hotels that are in on the coast in Florida? Well, I think for cruise lines, you have to parse between uh, disruption of cruises versus damage to cruise ports, because cruise ships are de- are maneuverable assets, you can redeploy them. So, you know, of the 25 or so Caribbean ports, uh, recent estimates I've seen are about a dozen are open, some other half dozen are closed, the rest are pending reassessment. Now, there were a number of cancellations by some estimates, about 10 cruises were canceled, 10 were uh, delayed as a result of this, and that does result in some uh, necessary maneuvering on, maneuvering on the part of cruise lines. Uh, but the you know the difference you have to parse between is what happens with the ports. Now, for um, for cruises in the Caribbean, one possible beneficiary in a, in a perverse sense might be Mexico, the Mexican y- y- Yucatan Peninsula. There are three cruise ports there, which are likely to see more arrivals because a lot of Eastern Caribbean cruises, which might be canceled or disrupted, might get redeployed there because uh, considerably less damage in places like Cozumel. Well, I understand that the tourism officials in the Caribbean are still trying to assess the damage, that uh, you've certainly got situation where Royal Caribbean said that future sailings aren't even going to stop at the ports in St. Martin, St. Thomas, or Key West until the islands have recovered. That's exactly it, as, as you know, of the so 25 or so odd, some odd uh, ports in the Caribbean, um, as I said, you know, about half are open, but the rest of them are in some transitional state of reevaluation and uh, and damage assessment, or actually being closed. And that does uh, push a lot of that traffic that might have gone to the Eastern Caribbean to the Western Caribbean. Some very desirable destinations there, no doubt, but that is a source of disruption. And if you were on one of those cruises that got canceled because of the last hurricane, uh, you would get a full refund and a and a partial credit towards a future cruise. So there are some ways that cruise lines try to make it up to affect the passengers in terms of their policies. Have we already gotten any guidance from Carnival, Royal Caribbean, Norwegian Cruise Line about how much of a hit this will cause uh, to their third quarter earnings? We have not yet, although Carnival will likely report their earnings within the next two weeks, perhaps next week, because they just finished their August quarter. Um, you know, very often in some past storms, the disruption in terms of an earnings per share impact has been relatively manageable. I mean, when Hurricane Sandy came about in 2012, it affected um, uh, annual earnings per share for companies like Royal Caribbean by about two cents per share. So there might very well be some impact in terms of uh, cost of issuing vouchers or some disruption or operational costs, uh, but it's struggling pretty manageable. Well, but, you know, there's a difference between the immediate costs and, say, the cost of not really being able to land at a port Mm -hmm. or not really having uh, clients that want to, passengers that want to go to an island that has been decimated by a hurricane and doesn't even have lodging or, or things to see, right? I mean... 
And is there some kind of sense of what that impact could be? We don't know yet. I mean, certainly for Eastern Caribbean ports, for the U.S. Virgin Islands, for Martin's Islands like St. Martin, which are popular cruise destinations, we have the reality of ongoing economic and infrastructure damage and damage to ports. Uh, and, and as I said, just as some of the Chinese cruises were rerouted from South Korea to Japan, so some of these Caribbean cruises might have been rerouted from the Eastern Caribbean to the Western Caribbean. It's not ideal. Um, it happens every year. I think part of the issue will be, or what we're watching, is whether or not there will be more hurricanes for the remainder of this season, which could further either disrupt cruises or cause uh, damage. But at least for this storm, uh, as bad as it was, things could have been far worse. Brian, just to get try to get an update, uh, the Keys, the Florida Keys, Monroe County, uh, saying that there's no fuel, no electricity, no running water, no cell service. General Aviation at Key West International, as well as Florida Keys Marathon International, they're closed. Uh, any estimates how long it's going to be before this is up and running? Uh, really don't know. I, I will tell you that if you look at a one-week impact, for example, to the hotel industry centered around Miami, there was indeed an effect. If you look at occupancy rates or revenue per available room, those metrics were down 30 to 35% year over year for the week ended um, uh, September Ninth. Now, of course, if you roll out over a four-week period, things are pretty flat, but certainly the, the hotel industry there no doubt took a hit. Brian Egger, thank you so much for joining us. Brian Egger is Senior Gaming and Lodging Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. And we have seen a hit to those shares of cruise liners, and there's a question of uh, whether they will rebound as people reassess. There is a growing chorus that perhaps markets are too sanguine about this. I want to bring in Jack Ablin to weigh in on this. Jack Ablin is chief investment officer of BMO Private Bank, overseeing about $68 billion of assets from Chicago. Jack, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, earlier in the program, Brad McMillan of Commonwealth Financial Network said that there was a real likelihood that uh, benchmark treasury yields could rise substantially over the next 18 months to two years and spur a recession. Do you agree? Um, you know, it, we are in that point of the business cycle where we're kind of reaching that full capacity. And so perhaps moving toward a uh, higher rate, slower growth in the future is certainly a possibility. Hey, uh, Jack, uh, can I just turn your attention to obviously this ongoing uh, issue of North Korea, its nuclear ambitions and uh, test firing of these ballistic missiles? I understand it's terrible and, you know, world leaders are spending their time trying to figure out what to do about it. If something untoward were to happen, why would that be such a direct connection to what happens to the stock market? Well, you know, it's interesting. I did write a note about North Korea this morning, Pim, and my focus is let's not worry or let's not focus so much on Kim Jong-un. Let's, let's look at President Xi. I think it's really China certainly holds the cards here. And our bottom line is as long as China's concern, not concerned, we shouldn't be concerned because really in many respects, North Korea and China share a number of political priorities. And as long as uh, Kim Jong-un operates within those shared priorities, China's going to go ahead and let him flap his arms and do whatever he's going to do. 
should he start to move outside of that realm, perhaps uh, if China sensed that he would launch an unprovoked attack, then I think they would intervene. But for right now, I don't, I don't, see, uh, I don't see that happening. So right now, what is the biggest concern as far as disrupting this uh, record rally that we're seeing in U.S. stocks? it's really just going to be, um, you know, obviously, you know, uh, those unknowns are are, uh, outside my scope, but I I will say, you know, it's going to be monetary policy. The fact is that it's been easy policy and quantitative easing that got us uh, a lot of the way from 2009 till where we are today, Uh, and it's possible that quantitative tightening and a reversal of those moves um, could, you know, um, at least tamp some of that uh, enthusiasm that we've had. Well, and, and Jack, I guess the, the Fed has made very clear that it's not going to raise rates at a, at a fast pace unless they see some material economic growth and inflation in particular. What are the chances in your mind that we do get more material inflation, more material wages, uh, wage increases that would lead to a more rapid rise in benchmark borrowing costs? Yeah, I would say um, you're right. Um, you know, on paper, I would say the Fed will, would does not have enough evidence currently um, to really start to restrict things, raise rates, or really um, reduce the balance sheet. Um, certainly not both. But given that that um, Chairwoman Yellen expects that she will not be reappointed, nor she may not even take the position if she was offered it, um, she may want to do kind of a what what Bernanke tried to do and just create some closure on a strategy that she uh, maybe she didn't open up herself, but she certainly perpetuated. So there could be a, a motivation to start something that, you know, on all other things being equal, she wouldn't have done on her own. Um, that said, you know, I think that you're right. I mean, we could see some uh, inflation pressure down the line. We haven't. I would have expected to see, for example, 3% wage growth by the end of this year, and we're not close to that yet, but eventually it will happen, and, and that's part of the business cycle. So I expect that, um, you know, we can continue on this nice, steady path higher, probably through uh, the first quarter easily into 2018. Then as um, some of this inflation data comes through, we start to see some higher rates. Um, the second half of 18 could be problematic for equity investing. Hey, does Jack Ablin believe that U.S. equities are expensive? Yeah, I believe they're expensive. Um, the only lens you can peer through to, to, and squint to make them look cheap is through the lens of bonds. If you take, for example, the earnings yield, historically the earnings yield, which is just the reciprocal of the P.E. ratio, and the triple B 10-year bond yield have been identical. They moved in tandem on top of one another for decades. That was until 2009 when they split apart. Right now, the earnings yield is about 1.6% higher uh, than the earnings uh, than the triple B bond yield. So perhaps for those uh, investors who are looking for some uh, rationale for jumping into the market, that would be it. So, Jack, uh, it sounds like you think bonds are the most expensive part of the market right now, U.S. government bonds in particular. I do. I, I have a very difficult time with it. Really, the, the only... Um, it, the real use for them is is really as a hedge. You know, if you felt that you know this is our this is our main scenario, but if we're wrong, you know, we want to have something to offset. But you know, that really hasn't hasn't played out. I will say, 
Interestingly, um, this last quarter, high-quality corporate bonds outperform high-yield bonds. So we may start to see a turn in the, uh, the credit cycle, and that tends to go earlier than equities themselves. And that's something we're just starting to watch. Although it's sort of interesting because in the latest Bank of America Merrill Lynch fund manager survey for September, they actually showed that there are a greater number of investors who are going underweight investment grade and going more heavily weighted toward high yield. So it doesn't, it, you know, it sort of means perhaps that people got a little overly enthusiastic with investment grade and now they're kind of shifting back, uh, which is, I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, that, that could be. Like I said, it's, it's not enough of a trend yet. Uh, but if we start to see uh, high-quality bonds continually outperform high yield, and, and that's possible given that where credit spreads are currently set. I mean, they're so low. Um, that could be an indication. And it was. I mean, if you go back to the last you know, financial crisis, uh, we saw credit spreads widen uh, four quarters before. Uh, it was the fourth quarter of 2007. So it certainly gave us a, a long uh, warning period for 2008. Thanks very much for spending time with us. Jack Ablin, as always, Chief Investment Officer, BMO Private Bank, helping to manage approximately $68 billion of client assets based in Chicago. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.